Hello and welcome to episode 187 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here, as always, with Jason Rabinowitz. Hello, Ian. How's it going? It's going all right, Jason. How are you, sir? I'm good. My my recording venue is a lot less inspiring this week, unfortunately. Oh, well, just strap some wings on the cat and you'll be all set. She might not like that, but we, we won't know for sure until I try. There, With Halloween coming up, I... I politely request that you at least give it a good shot. Okay, will do. <laughs> it was a busy week with uh, un- some unfortunate news coming in over the weekend, which is where we begin the show. Unfortunately, there was a rather significant incident with a Korean Air A330 trying to land in Cebu in the Philippines. The aircraft was landing in poor weather thunderstorms and rain at the time, a wet runway in very humid conditions. And on its third approach, the aircraft was unable to stop on the runway and continued well off the runway for about 300 meters, going through the ILS lighting towers and coming to rest just before exiting the airport proper. Fortunately, however, No serious injuries were reported. 162 passengers, 11 crew members, and none of them, not one of them, sustained serious injuries. That's pretty miraculous. That's good to hear. Aside from the the damage to the aircraft, which is pretty substantial if you look at any of the images, like the front bottom of the aircraft is kind of gone. It doesn't. It's not there anymore. I don't know where it is, but it's not attached to the aircraft where the nose gear would be. But typically. In this kind of accident, somebody gets injured during the evacuation. A a lot of accidents like this, maybe nobody is injured during the actual accident, but somebody sprains an ankle, breaks a leg during the evacuation. But in this case, uh, no injuries whatsoever. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, it was was really good to hear that. No one was injured. The I think it looks much worse for wear because of what it drove through, I guess, after exiting the the usable part of the runway. So the the data that we received from the aircraft unfortunately doesn't go to, I guess, zero knots. The the aircraft was still moving at, at a high rate of speed on the runway when when the last ADSB data came through. So at at fifteen oh eight UTC, which is eleven oh eight PM local time, the ground speed was ninety knots and that was at a point on the runway so the the aircraft landed on runway 22 and going almost all the way down the runway to where the the touchdown area for runway 4 so if you're landing in the opposite direction the aircraft reported its last positional data and speed data there so 90 knots still there much faster than an aircraft would normally be traveling at that point in its landing roll. Then went about 300 meters off the the usable portion of the runway, so beyond any paved surfaces into the grass. And then you start getting into the ILS lighting towers and things like that. And if you look at the aircraft, and we'll put a link in the show notes to, to photos post, post-accident, you'll see portions of that lighting array embedded in the aircraft and over the top of the aircraft. So kind of a, a a violent impact even beyond the end of the runway into those ILS pieces. And, and still no one, no one was injured. And none of that created a, a fire situation, which is always one of the, the driving factors for 
people being injured and, and or killed is when it, the aircraft you know catches fire, and that thankfully didn't happen here. Yeah, and definitely an advertisement here for runway safety areas. Looking at the the satellite imagery on Google Maps, there's about 1,100, 1,200 feet between the absolute end of pavement coming down on runway 22 until you pretty much run into very dense, uh, looks like a residential- A neighborhood. A neighborhood or something. I can't quite identify what it is from satellite view because I can only see roofs, but there's a lot of stuff there. JBX Wine Shop for one and Basic Road Basketball Court, things you don't want to drive an airplane into. And they came quite close to that, the end of that 1,100 feet. And not all airports have 1,100 feet to spare at the end of the runway. But one thing that really stuck out to me is looking at some of the images of uh, the aircraft that came to rest. It looks, at first, it looks like it came to rest next to a lake or something. And there's no lake there. It's just there are these gigantic puddles from, I guess, all the rain they had that contaminated the runway. And it just kind of looks like it settled next to a little lake. Yeah, I mean, there was it, it had been raining for quite some time before the before the aircraft even arrived in the area, and then two two go arounds, and then on the third attempt, they they didn't they weren't able to stop on the runway. So obviously, there's an investigation going on. The Philippines is leading the investigation. The South Koreans will be party to the investigation. The French will be party to the investigation as the uh, state of manufacture. And so the BEA will be involved as well. How much involvement each of those organizations have is, is yet to be determined. But I'm sure we'll be very interested to see the the report that comes out of this to see what the the exact runway conditions were and and what actions were the pilots taking when they landed the plane. So now we wait for uh, for a preliminary report at least. Yeah, and, and I believe that was the airport's only functional runway at the time. I think they're building or in the stages of completing a second parallel runway. So the of course the airport was closed for quite some time ago, but. Looking at the data of flights on the ground, it looks like things started flowing about 38 hours ago, and then there's a gap until uh, three days ago where the last aircraft to land before that was uh, the incident aircraft, which will no doubt not move again as far as Flight Radar 24 data is concerned, because almost certainly that aircraft is uh, seen its last flight. It's, I mean, the the f- area forward of the engines it no longer has a bottom. It, it is not there. So it is departed the, the, the bottom skin panel is, is it maybe folded up underneath. I'm not sure. Um, it, if they don't piece out the the aircraft where it sits, I would be very surprised to at least get it away from from the runway. But but stranger things have happened with, with airports just leaving aircraft where they lie. That's true. Uh, after an accident, so so we'll see what happens here. But definitely. I mean, there have been a couple where we're like, oh, maybe they'll repair it. Maybe they won't. The the BA 777 in Vegas, the Delta 757 in uh, Ponta Delgada. This one, I, this do, is not I, that. Would, <laughs> I would eat a winglet if they decide to repair this aircraft. Well, hopefully, um, it's a carbon it's fiber a, winglet yeah, and not yeah. aluminum because I, mean, I, I don't see that happening. Yeah. But also, kudos to Korean Air for very quickly putting out a statement and taking responsibility for this. Uh, far too often, we see airlines or our companies in general just ignoring issues or emergencies or, or, or crisis that come up. But Korean Air was all over it very quickly. Yeah, they they got a statement out fairly quickly and then came out with a follow-up statement that 
that expanded on that original statement uh, and, and gave a lot more information and, and detail. So I, I thought that was that was good on them to uh, to do that and, and get that out quickly. The most interesting thing to me, and someone mentioned this when we shared this, is the the statement itself was shared primarily via Instagram. Hmm. Which is one uh, way to do it. It was it was an interesting choice. I mean, and I and I guess you know they they felt like that was the the easiest or the the quickest way to get the information out. Maybe the person that updates the website was off for the for the weekend. Um, it, it was overnight, so I'm not sure they they just they got to the the person who runs their Instagram first and was like, here, post this. Um, so yeah, I just I, I'm just an, an interesting side note here. So yeah, we'll leave that um, as it is until we get more information. Then we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about it in, in a future episode. Jason, it's a uh, it's an exciting week in Long Beach, California. You're not there this year. I'm not. I'm not there. That, is, that's a uh, good uh, good deduction. I am not. <laughs> but tell me about what's going on in, in Long Beach this week, and and what, if anything, I should care about. Well, there's the. Uh, I think what you're alluding to here is the uh, Apex Expo, which is kind of like the the show I go to every year in in uh, Germany in Hamburg, the Aircraft Interior Expo. But this one's a bit smaller, and I just didn't make it this year. I've been traveling enough recently. But not all that much out, but something did catch a lot of eyeballs yesterday, which was an Airbus announcement. So they've been, uh, Mary Kirby and, and John Walton over at Runway Girl Network have been all over the potential of a 10 abreast A350 economy cabin for, for years now. This, this dates back to oh, quite a long time. And there are some airlines today with the 10 abreast A350 economy cabin, but this would be called NPS. And do you know what NPS stands for, Ian? I do. I do. Is is this like, should I actually guess or is this like a, a rhetorical no, you already question? Know. It, it, it's, it's new production standards. So we didn't get anything fancy like uh, airspace or NEO or whatever. It's new production standard. And basically what that means is Airbus is going to shave a couple inches off the sidewall to create additional width in the cabin of their aircraft that they already called the extra wide body. Apparently, it wasn't extra wide enough. They need they need more space in the cabin. See now, here's where they here's where they miss the opportunity to go with XXWB. Mm, yes, instead yes. of because the A three fifty XWB NPS. There's a future in marketing for you. <laughs> maybe, maybe. So but anyway, I think they should have gone with the XXWB. Yeah. So Airbus slimmed off a few inches from the sidewall, which will make a, a, a 343 10 abreast economy configuration on an A350 less miserable because it does exist today on a couple of very low cost long haul airlines like French B, I think, has it. It's not good. It is very squishy. They did, they, they kind of made a little mistake where they, they showed a picture of what they, said would be NPS to the media that attended the show, but they showed kind of a weird hybrid of old and new where they said, here's a look at an Iberia A350 configuration. And they showed it with 10 abreast. And, and everyone said, whoa, Iberia is taking 10 abreast economy on an A350. That, that's terrible. I don't want anything to do with that. It turned out they kind of slapped that slide together at the last minute and didn't actually represent what they were really doing. So Iberia is not actually rolling out 10 abreast A350 economy seats. And, and later on, when they sent out 
the uh, the same slide deck to media and I guess email it was a different picture. So that that raised some eyeballs very quickly. That oh no, Iberia is going to mainline mainstream tenebras seating on the A350 and 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 indeed no, it, it's good news that there will be a couple extra inches in their cabin and they will not be installing an extra seat in every row. So what turned out to be panic is turns out to be good news. Right. So so the MPS is, by definition, the new production standard. Airbus has figured out a, this isn't an option that airlines will now choose the standard or, or not choose. This is the new production standard. So so you'll have more room in the cabin. Great. It's not a it's not a ton of room. It's it's four inches. The the cross section of the cabin goes from two hundred and twenty-one inches to two hundred and twenty-five inches in, in the interior width of the cabin. And they found that space at the armrest level and they found that space kind of at the the head or slightly above the head level depending on how tall you are. And so the good news here as Jason mentioned is that you'll have more room on new build A350s than you did on older aircraft you'll have a little bit more room. So for Iberia customers who are, they're they're going to be flying in nine abreast still, not 10 abreast. They, I I wonder I wonder how freaked out Iberia was when they saw that. I'd be pissed if I were Iberia and maybe I could get an extra aircraft out of them for free. I don't know. <laughs> I don't how much damage has been done? Yeah, I, I don't know about that. But I, yeah, no. I I think they I think there was probably an angry email or phone call or something. But it'll give more space within the cabin. But it also opens up other carriers, not necessarily Iberia, but other carriers to to make the the decision to have a ten abreast A three fifty more palatable. And notice Jason before did not say not miserable. He just said less miserable. Less miserable. Other airlines that would have been very hesitant or or wouldn't do it at all under the, I guess, old production standard uh, might do it under the new production standard. But I, I don't know. I look at these and I'm always unconvinced that adding a couple extra seats on board an aircraft that's probably not going out full to the discomfort of all passengers on board. Is that really, really necessary? I guess every airline in the world determined, yes, it is on the 777, but let's not repeat the same fate on the A350. <laughs> yeah, I, I I both see your point, but having not run the numbers myself, trust the folks that have run the numbers to come up with the conclusion that yes, it is in our best interest if that's the product we want to provide our passengers. So I, I think I think that's a big if at this point. Yep. You know what else is a, a big if? What's that? If some really strange airline that you wouldn't expect to operate A three thirty freighters for Amazon. Do you know who it is? I, I do know who it is. It's I Hawaiian do know who it Airlines. Is. And this is like probably the most surprising press release I, I've gotten in a very long time. Or the the least expected press release. Hawaiian Air will maintain and fly 10 Airbus A330 uh, passenger to freighter converted aircraft under the Prime Air brand. And that is surprising. I mean, it's it's surprising and not. I mean, it. so for my mind, I agree with you. Yes, this was unexpected. And it was the announcement or the, the timing of the announcement, that was kind of a surprise. But thinking about what Amazon has been trying to do, this this fits in with their model of investing in airlines. Because not only will Hawaiian fly A330s for Amazon, 
Amazon will also take a stake in the airline. Interesting. So the they'll fly up to 10 uh, converted P2Fs for Amazon. But the the key here is that these aircraft, while while they will incrementally increase Amazon's capacity, won't it's not like they're adding 10 aircraft to the fleet because when they started Amazon, what was Amazon Prime Air, which is now Amazon Air because Prime Air is their drone delivery service, but they still paint Prime Air on the airplanes that are flying as Amazon Air. That's not confusing. And it's somehow all operated by Mesa. <laughs> exactly. So so when they first started with the with these aircraft, they were starting with 767 converted, mostly, con- I don't think any of them were pure freighters, converted 767s. And those aircraft are now, they were old then they're now end of life they're they're reaching the they're reaching that decheck becomes too expensive to bother with age and so these a330s what they're going to do is they're going to to fill the hole that the retiring 767s are going to leave so it's not a huge increase they're not adding 10 aircraft to the fleet they're not adding 10 a33300s to the fleet just to add capacity it will incrementally add capacity because the a33300 will carry more cargo than the 767s yeah and there's a couple interesting points here a these are not hawaiian air aircraft currently these are 300s hawaiian air currently has 200 so these are coming from somewhere else and yes, that happens to be coincidental at the same time that uh, Hawaiian Air will phase out its A330 fleet in favor of new build 787s coming soon, eventually soon. Eventually soon. Eventually yes. soon. Only Boeing knows for sure, not even them. But these will enter service in, in uh, next year and in 2024. And I guess it makes sense since instead of having to train your current A330 pilots over to 787, they can just move over to these freighters. I assume at least some I of assume, them. Yeah, at least some of them. I I would assume that a number of Hawaiian's most senior A330 pilots would much rather move over to the 787 yes. and continue passenger flying uh, because cargo flying and passenger flying are, are very different uh, as the pilots we've talked with on the podcast before both on on the passenger side and the cargo side have have noted uh, extensively. So it yeah, it'll be interesting to see where this pilot pool comes from. But I mean it 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 helps that Hawaiian is very familiar with the A330 already. Yes, and it's also interesting that it'll kind of turn Honolulu into this little uh Trans-Pacific freight gateway since apparently Anchorage is, is bursting at the seams and can't really take anymore. And this is a nice little uh, alternative route between Asia and then the West Coast US. Yeah. I, that part of the puzzle, I think, is the most interesting to me because they'll – so Hawaiian's going to both do kind of trans-Pacific work, but mostly be flying – in and out of the the Cincinnati uh, hub that Amazon has has built up, so it'll be really interesting that they're going to open up a um, a main mainland pilot base for the first time for these for these flights, and then they'll be or mainland continental U.S. and then they'll also be growing their existing kind of operations to support the the cargo operation. So they're they're basically starting a whole nother airline. It's interesting. We'll we'll keep our eyes on this. I mean, it, who else is going to do this? I mean, that that's I guess the next question. Who who who's going to fly for 
for Amazon next because you've got Sun Country. Mesa. They flew seven. They flew seven three sevens, and then they said, "Oh, we can we can fly them with boxes in them too. That'll be fine." You've got Atlas and uh, ATSG. You've got Hawaiian now. And so, I mean, I, I guess the question becomes, who, who's next? I don't know. Well, stay tuned. I don't know. There you go. Speaking of Airbus aircraft, we have two, I don't want to say big orders. One's fairly healthy and one's just fascinating. Wait, only one of them is Airbus, though. You said, speaking of Airbus, only the first one is an Airbus order. And that would be uh, a top-up order from Air Canada for 15 more A220s bringing their uh, – oh, no. Oh, we skipped right over it. You're right. There are two <laughs> Airbus orders. You put it in red. Okay, I skipped right over that one. We're going out of order here. But how dare I? But Air, uh, Airbus will be uh, manufacturing 15 more A22300s for Air Canada, produced specifically in Montreal. They, they made sure to say these are going to be Canadian-built aircraft. We don't want that stuff over from Mobile or whatever. These are – proudly Canadian aircraft. So that's nice. They'll probably be able to get these uh, to phase out the rest of their very, 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 very old A320, A319 fleet. So that's nice. What else happened in, in Airbus land? Well, the one that you skipped over that I was most excited about- That the airline the... itself spoiled days ago. <laughs> That was the best part about it. Oh, you ruined my you ruined my whole bit, man. Oh, well, I skipped over it entirely, so now that everything's all, right. all it's all there. Lost. You go. So, so Air Cote d'Ivoire ordered two A three thirty Neos, but they ordered them first on Twitter. I did not know you could do that yet. I know you could do a little marketplace on Twitter, kind of like uh, in your profile, but I didn't know you could buy it. Apparently, you can buy you can buy A three thirties via Twitter now. So the announcement comes into inboxes for for journalists, and they say, don't tell anybody about this yet. Go ahead and write your story, and then we're going to announce it at this time, and then you can release the story. Then they scooped their own embargoed announcement by just posting it on Twitter. Okay. I thought it was great. Yeah, it was great. All, all announcements should be like that. So two A330neos, and um, I didn't see a delivery date. Did you? Uh, skimming, skimming, skimming. Nope. Okay, so nope. when we figure out the delivery date, then um, we'll have to we'll have to go flying. But looking forward to to seeing them. And then we have a not a new Boeing order, but more paperwork was signed by Alaska Air to top up or or really bulk up their existing Max order. Yeah, they have exercised options for an additional fifty two seven three Max aircraft. 42 of them are the Dash 10 variant. 10 of them are of the Dash 9 variant. So that's that's a lot of aircraft. That is a lot of aircraft, and it's a lot of Dash 10s, but they're going to have to continued waiting for for the Dash 10 to be certified. Uh, this week, it the FAA basically said, and Boeing basically agreed, that it's not going to happen by the end of the year. So we're really, really leaning on Congress to say something here. They haven't said anything since they said something. And that was, what, two and a half weeks ago? So at this point, late October- We're still um, waiting. Unless something happens, it's going to be interesting to see what what happens in in the next Congress and and whether or not- Whatever that looks like. Yeah. I mean, whether or not anybody does anything uh, on that front, or if Boeing just says, okay, fine, we'll, we'll put the crew alerting system in, which I just- 
I just don't see happening. But we wait. And a little more detail on the Alaska order. These aircraft will come between sure. 2024 and 2027. And Alaska also secured the rights for 105 more aircraft through 2030, which they are saying it's their largest Boeing aircraft order in its 90-year history. But most of this, more than half, or actually the bulk of it, 105, are options. They're not firm. So they may or may not ever actually happen. But it says, uh, Alaska says that this puts them on the road to once again become an all Boeing airline. For real this time. For real this time. Not like the fake all Boeing airline they've been for the last couple decades. For real this time. For real. They mean it. <laughs> and they do mean um, it. By the end of next year, no more yeah, Dash 8s, that's... no more Airbus aircraft, all, all gone. They'll be purely Boeing 737 airline. That's it. For real. Maybe. Let's move over to Embraer, who took a nice order from TUI. They have selected the E195E2, and they are going to take delivery of three of those, uh, leasing through AirCap. Yeah, so for that uh, will, uh, TUI Belgium, to be yeah. particular. And those will come in the first half of next year, actually, so quite soon. And E2s and aircraft, you just don't hear much about. So, so good for them. And it's... It's a nice aircraft, so I would love to hear more about it. I would love to fly one one day. So uh, um, I'm waiting for Porter to get theirs in service any any day now. Any day now. Yes, that will be good. Let's go... Let's go to Florida. Do we have to? Yeah, we, well, we have to because somebody from Cuba went to Florida, and this becomes a good story. Uh, so a guy was flying a an Antonov An-2 on a crop dusting flight. Um, he was carrying out uh, quote unquote agricultural fumigation tasks. And then after completing the second flight of the day, the uh, the pilot just decided he noped out of there. He had had enough and flew from Cuba to Florida, landing in the, uh, the Everglades uh, Dade Collier Airport. So there is so much to unpack in that step. Wow. Yeah. So for one thing, in AN-2, if you're not familiar, it's a Soviet-era aircraft, uh, a bi-wing aircraft. So it is very old-timey looking. Apparently, these are like they're, – they're tanks. You can't destroy them. He flew all the way to – if you're not familiar with uh, the, the Dade Collier Training and Transition Airport, it, it is literally smack dab in the middle of nowhere Everglades connected to – nothing. Basically, I think there's one road to US 41 that was initially way back in like the, the crazy days of the 50s, supposed to be a mega trans, a mega supersonic aircraft airport, obviously never came to be, but it is not near the coast. It is quite a distance from, from uh, any body of water. So it is quite surprising that this pilot was able to go the uh, 30 at minimum 30 miles from the water all the way to this airport undetected. And there's going to be a whole lot of questions for a whole lot of people about how this was able to happen. I'm not sure if he made it entirely undetected because I did see the report that Customs and Border Patrol did intercept him, but he, he was able to land and was was detained upon arrival. The aircraft's still there to my knowledge. I'm not sure if if Cuba's going to want it back? I don't know if they're allowed to get it back. 
I don't know. I mean, it, I don't it, know it has no works. valid U.S. airworthiness. Like, I would would the FAA give them a special permit to me? Like, here, take your plane back. I don't know. It's probably going to become uh, an Instagram background piece for anyone who manages to <laughs> somehow get to this airport. But there is video of, of the pilot flying this airplane at exceptionally low altitudes to um, to evade radar detection, and apparently, mission accomplished. Yeah, somebody was out fishing out in the Atlantic and. There goes a plane and about go, oh, what, that's 15, unusual. 20 feet off the ground. Yeah, so it was uh, not something you see every day. No, no. That's uh, a crop dusting a Cuban AN2 in the Everglades is a strange sentence to have to say. It did not have that one in the, uh, in the show notes this week ahead of time. No, that's, that's but uh, I, I hope the the migrant, as they say, who who landed here in the Everglades, uh, finds safety or whatever it is they were fleeing from in Cuba, and good on them. Wow, yeah. So this is an interesting um, prediction that I, I guess um, predictions kind of the wrong word guesstimate analysis. So Eurocontrol puts out a traffic study. Every every so often, and their analysis this time around deals with returning to returning to Russian airspace, the the ability of, of European air traffic to return to Russian airspace, and they plan through twenty twenty eight at this point, and their plan through twenty twenty eight doesn't have any return to Russian airspace in that time frame. So, uh, a rather interesting analysis from Eurocontrol. We'll put a, a link in the show notes to it. But I just something that I, I wanted to flag, uh, given that it's only 2022 and, and Eurocontrol is already planning for the, the lack of availability of Russian airspace whatsoever through 2028. So no no optimism there. I, I don't think I don't think the analysis is misplaced or, or misguided at all. I, I just wanted to note the lack of optimism. Yeah, doesn't seem like things are going to be changing anytime soon. And even if somehow Russia just gave up and, and left Ukraine today, things are not going back to normal tomorrow, that things have consequences and, and things take a long time to stabilize. And that's not to say that airlines transiting Russia was exactly a foregone conclusion in the before times. There were plenty of airlines that never got Russian overflight permits, notably uh, Norwegian long haul when that was still a thing. They never were able to fly over Russian airspace and they weren't able to fly to a lot of Asian destinations that they wanted to. So even even before the invasion of Ukraine, uh, Russian overflight was a complicated, tricky thing. And I can't imagine it's going to be at least minimally that level of still complicated anytime soon. And if Eurocontrol doesn't think so, I, I can't see anyone else refuting that reasonably. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of optimistic, however, this was an interesting conversation that happened this week at the uh, the routes conference that was taking place where airlines and airports get together and talk about where they might fly in the future. And speaking at the conference, Frontier Airlines CEO Barry Biffle said that Frontier is expecting to take delivery of the A321 XLR in 2026 and is then considering transatlantic flight. Quote, definitely in consideration. So, uh, okay, uh, good, good for them. I won't be participating 
in that social experiment anytime soon. (laughs) Good for anyone who wants rock bottom ancillary out the wazoo airfares to on a narrow body aircraft to, to Europe. I mean, others have tried and not succeeded. But maybe Frontier has a, a secret formula that no one else has had before. They do have animals on their tail. That's true. Their airplanes are cute. So that that's a thing. So I don't know if that. it helps economically. But uh, remember, this is something, again, bringing up Norwegian, that Norwegian tried with the Max before uh, everything went bad for them. And it didn't work. They stopped doing all that pretty damn quickly, actually. But if Frontier, where would they even operate these flights from? They so, don't even really yeah. serve any Northeast Gateway. Yeah, so I mean that that's the second question. Biffle mentioned Philadelphia. Did did they even serve Philly? I mean, I know they have flights out of Trenton, which is Philly-ish. Maybe maybe, maybe that's that's what he's talking Trenton about. Trenton to London is a route that I kind of want. <laughs> I mean, just for fun. But so so Frontier mentions uh Philadelphia. And the other thing that he mentioned was also looking at going deeper into South America. So using Miami as a uh, that, as a gateway that makes from, much more sense. Yeah, using using Miami as a gateway deeper into into South America and then also being able to fly from the West Coast to the Caribbean on on ooh, some of those ooh, no. into those Hard longer from me on that one. I mean, I, yeah. I understand Miami to South America like JetBlue does plenty of that. I think they have some pushing eight-hour flights uh, on their 321 LR. So that does not surprise me at all. Yeah, but the the West Coast to the Caribbean is a little... Is there even a market for that? They, that's the, the Caribbean of the West Coast is Hawaii and, and like Mexico. Is there really a demand for like LA to, to Puerto Rico, I, I, I guess? I mean, Puerto Rico, probably. Probably, but, but I the mean, rest of the Caribbean, I don't yeah, know about that. I guess that's the, the question. So an interesting thing to consider, he also said that they're looking at adding a, I don't want to call it a premium cabin, but a not as uncomfortable version of their current cabin. Oh, you could call it the, aircraft. the big front seat. Huh. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. In fact, I I know potentially a couple hundred Airbus family aircrafts with big front seats that they won't need anymore that you could just take. <laughs> oh, that that whole thing is going to be a mess when it comes to actually reconfiguring those aircraft. But I don't want to talk about that until they get DOJ mm-hmm. approval. If they get DOJ approval, then we can talk about what a mess that's going to okay, be. Okay, we'll talk about that next the, year. The the JetBlue Spirit thing. So yeah, we'll we'll see if they they go from there. But nonetheless, interesting. I, I think transatlantic on a frontier aircraft as it is configured now. No, not no. for me. I've some people, yes, me, sure. No. I mean, I, I don't want to begrudge anyone that's willing to do that. I certainly want to hear about it, but I do not wish to participate in that. Absolutely. Having not. reached the ripe old age of I slept funny and now I have to go to physical therapy, I, I do not want to be in a frontier seat for for that long they're pre-reclined across the ocean sure sure that that, i mean that's the that's the that's a thing the marketing phrase sure (laughs) but um but no thank you i'm i'm good interesting though to see what they're going to do with the aircraft because they've ordered them they've got to figure out something to do with them so now we now we just we only have to wait four years or or possibly 
possibly a, a little longer because airlines are, are currently warning about the delays that they're facing. JetBlue this week said, this is how many aircraft we expected to take. We're going to take fewer aircraft than we initially expected because of all of the supply chain and production problems that Airbus is having. The same applies to Boeing and the MAX as well. And then there was one other thing I wanted to mention before we left this week. Oh, Boeing earnings came out today. We'll put a link in the show notes to the actual earnings uh, write-ups because they do much more justice than, than we could do. But the the top line that I wanted to pull out was the fact that CEO David Calhoun has said or said today that he has no indication from China that they are going to be willing to restart deliveries of the 737 MAX anytime soon or at any date. He has no no idea when that's going to happen. So not a not a positive No, and that comes on, no. on the same day where images have appeared of uh, a C919 in full Chinese Eastern livery, I believe, with a decal. Yeah, the, the first World's one. first yeah. C919. So uh, things are not too discreet at this point. Things are pretty intentional. Yeah. So it, again, we, we've talked about this in, in – in past episodes about how the you know waiting on the 919 to enter service or at least get certified before the 737 comes back in, into China is a distinct possibility there have been aircraft 737 max aircraft in China moving around um, over the past couple of weeks aircraft are getting taken out of storage and and being flown around China and for test flights and things like that but there has been no announcement about any time when they'll return to service or when Chinese airlines will begin to accept delivery of new build 737 maxes um, so for now we we wait all right and with that we have episode 187 in the books that's a good one I thought so I'm I'm proud of us Jason we made okay. it through Hit the, All hit right. the stop button before we say I'm hitting the stop. We can't take back. There you go. I'm Ian Pechnik here as always with Jason Rabinowitz. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.